Well, good morning, everybody. Hello. It's good to be back. And uh, we've started, uh, as Andy said, a new series of looking at claims Jesus made about himself. And these are known as the I Am sayings. And this morning, we're looking at John 8, chapter 12. Uh, sorry, John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. And to validate this claim, we have to examine what Jesus meant, the context in what he was saying, and the implications it has if we believe it. Well, light plays an important part in the Bible, starting in the first few verses in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So God's first creative word called forth light in the midst of the primordial darkness or nothingness. And light was necessary for making his creative works visible and life possible. But it was more than just creating what we know as day and night. Creation, as designed and ordered by God, it had no lingering traces of disorder and no dark and threatening forces arrayed against God or people. Even darkness and the deep were given benevolent functions in a world fashioned to bless and sustain life. So early on, right at the beginning of the Old Testament, light was symbolic of life and blessing. Now when the fall occurred and humans rebelled against God, we departed from the light of God and went into the darkness of the fallen world. And the writer of Job puts it this way. There are those who rebel against the light who do not know its ways or stay in its paths. And there are a few examples there of how we do that. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. You see, humans preferred the darkness of their own ways than the light of God's way. And throughout the Old Testament, light and darkness continued to play a part in defining this rift in the relationship between God and humans. But it also revealed God's plan of salvation, how he was seeking to reconcile and redeem his lost people, first through the Jewish nation and then through the Messiah. Well, the Jewish prophets often described seeking God as looking to the light. Samuel said, You, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. Then came the prophecies which spoke of the Messiah, the one who would redeem Israel and the world to God. And this verse from Isaiah we hear every Christmas. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So the concept of salvation 
that humanity was living in a world of darkness away from God and that someone would come from God to restore his people and return them to the light was set in the hearts of the Jewish nation. So let's fast forward to our passage. And we find Jesus, whom we know to be the Messiah that Isaiah was prophesying about. And if you'd like to follow this bit of the passage in your, in your Bibles, I think it was 1137, if my memory serves right. 1173. 1173. You get a bit dyslexic when you're in your old age. Oh, it's 1073. Oh, there we go. Starting at verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus was identifying himself clearly with the Messiah as prophesied by Isaiah. Furthermore, by using the term I am, Jesus was using the title that God had given Moses so that the Jews would know who he was. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. And I am was the person they knew to be God. So not only was Jesus saying he was the Messiah, the Saviour, he was saying he was God. So let's put this into context with our reading. For any human being to make such a claim in that time would put them in conflict with the Jewish religious authorities. And as we see in verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Well, the nub of the problem wasn't that Jesus had got it wrong. It was that the Jews witnessed his miraculous healings. They acknowledged his wisdom as a great teacher. They even accepted that he was one who spoke with authority. Yet they failed to see him for who he really was, the Messiah. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. In verse 14, he says this, Even if I testify on my behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. And then in verse 18, he says this, I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And as we see in verse 19, when they asked Jesus who his father was, his reply summarised both their lack of understanding and their failure to accept that he was who he said he was. Jesus said, You do not know me or my father. 
If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Well, Jesus' statements are as real now as they were then. We are not left in any doubt about who Jesus said he was, because that's who he is. And in John 1, right at the beginning of John's Gospel, John says this, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what are the implications of this? Well, we can embrace the light as his followers did, or reject it, as the Pharisees did. In John 1, 19-21, Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. We can live in relationship with Jesus in the light or we can walk in the darkness of the world. And when we live in the light of Jesus, then we too shine in the darkness. We share his light of salvation with others. In our homes, our workplaces, our schools, our town, our city, our country. Well, some of you will know I've been overseas these past few weeks, visiting my son and his family who are on mission. And I've been to some challenging places in the world over the years I've been travelling. But none of these prepared me for Antananarivo in Madagascar. You see, despite being rich in natural resources and natural beauty... Madagascar is in the top 10 poorest countries. However, in the poverty rate index used by the World Bank, the number of, that is the number of people whose income fails to meet basic personal needs such as food, shelter and clothing, it now ranks third worst in the world. And I witnessed extreme poverty. And it affects 75% of the population who live on less than $1.9 per day. And more than 52% who have a daily food intake insufficient to meet dietary energy requirements. And basically, it's caused stunted growth. The Malagasy's are a very small race. Child labour, which affects 50% of the young population. Widespread begging on every street. 
people urinating and defecating in public because more than 75% of people have no access to clean water and sanitation. The sprawling urbanisation of Antananarivo, which was bewildering, with street after street after street packed with people, to the point that it was difficult, even dangerous, to drive on the road, let alone walk. Pollution, which makes it the seventh most polluted city on earth in terms of air quality, because most household waste is burned, half the electricity generation is fossil fuels, that is when the the electricity is on, because it's off at least twice a day through power cuts, and dangerously high traffic emissions, because only a minority of vehicles have catalytic converters. In short, pollution is the biggest killer, responsible for one in five deaths. And it won't get better, because the massive deforestation has reduced the life-giving rainforests, the island's lungs, to just 10% of what they originally were. Widespread corruption. We were stopped by a policeman who wanted a bribe. Crime is also on the rise. A distrust of foreigners due to its chequered history prior to and since independence from the French in 1960. And so that makes being a white face in a sea of black and brown faces at times quite unsettling. And a broken political system which means that there could be widespread civil unrest in the forthcoming elections. I could go on and on. This is everyday life without natural disasters or war zones or pandemics to make things worse. And the outlook is hopeless. This is darkness. I didn't even know where to start to pray. Then God spoke to me early one morning and said, I have brought you here to witness human misery. You are too comfortable. This grieves me. You must speak out. What looks impossible for you is not impossible for me. And as our stay went on, I started to see light flickering in the darkness. I saw many local Malagasy people with a tremendous capacity for joy. They're a lovely, optimistic people once you gain their trust. And in this collision of cultures, my 18-month granddaughter puts me to shame. She just goes up to her peers and hugs them. I mean, what a great way to gain trust. I witnessed the Holy Spirit in worship the local church we attended was in the open air because there are not buildings big enough to house the people. Isn't that great? 
I met a number of Malagasis who are passionate to share the love of Jesus with their fellow Malagasis. And they are affected because the church we attended has several new people three weeks running. I heard about resourceful teams who go out from the local churches and plant new churches. And they're supported by mission agencies like AIM and YWAM. And they're throughout the towns and cities in the country. Not just a few, there's a lot. But are these handful of lights enough? In human terms, the problems are massive, impossible to solve. But God continued to speak to me. He said, if you believe in me, then believe it can be done. I believe that the Jesus who said, I am the light of the world, will do it. I don't know how he will do it, whether he does it one light at a time or something more dramatic. But I believe he is turning up the brightness. So what does Jesus, light of the world, have for us here at CCB this morning? Well, if God has touched your heart like he's touched mine, and you want to stand with the people of Madagascar, then please come and talk to me after the service. I don't know what God is calling us to there specifically. We're already supporting um, Simon, Miriam and Sienna out there. But he wants us to add our lights to overcome the darkness there. If you've been journeying with Jesus, but it's a bit of a struggle, maybe you've been wrestling with him over something in your life. I believe God is saying this over you. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. Or perhaps you're living in the light and you've been looking to Jesus for what's ahead. Especially as it looks dark outside and you know there are trials and tribulations that you have yet to face in this world. Remember these verses from Revelation. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. Such a wonderful promise and hope for the future. But for now, we carry around a light of salvation in our hearts, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said this, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it can be hidden. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. How can we not share this light with others? A final thought. We live in dark times in an increasingly dark world. 
But Jesus is still the light of the world. Get ready, because he's going to turn up the brightness.